when I started learning about Ethereum and just blockchain, when I was interviewing for this company, I remember realizing and reading an article that said, okay, I can either build for a centralized 2.0, like the next Facebook or Google, or I can help build the next decentralized 1.0. And that became a no-brainer, especially as a designer and getting to build the foundations of how people interacted in this new world and make a larger impact and opportunity to build on the frontiers here. Welcome to The Wild Show with your hosts, Will Chang, Lee Chang, and Andrew Su. Hi, this is Will Chang, and as always, I have my co-hosts, Lee Chang and Andrew Su with me. Excited to be here. Happy to be here. Today, our guest is Yang Yu. Yang is the lead product designer at Syndicate. Syndicate's Web3 investment club product allows friends, angel investors, and Web3 communities to create and run investment clubs as a DAO. Yang is also a member of VectorDAO, a collective of top-tier Web3 product designers. Yang represents VectorDAO and gives presentations on what good design in Web3 looks like. I had the privilege of attending her talk at ETH Denver in person, and it was one of my favorites. Welcome, Yang. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here. We actually met the day before you gave your talk. I watched the presentation that you gave to Alliance DAO Online in preparation for the John Gian VectorDAO episode. I wanted to attend your talk in person, but couldn't find the location, so I just DM'd you on Twitter, and we ended up having a coffee before your talk. Tell me a little bit about what your experience at ETH Denver was like. Yeah, of course. ETH Denver was a lot of fun and also just very overwhelming. Having worked in the space for a few years, I think this was the first event that really like first in-person event that I had gone to in the crypto and Web3 space. And it was just super energizing to meet like other builders and other people that are kind of caught up with what the trends are or what people are building. And things move so, so quickly in the space. And I think... Yeah, me being a very much an introvert, having to mentally and physically recover from ETH Denver was definitely an event, but it was a lot of fun just getting to meet people mostly. Did you do anything to prepare as an introvert for ETH Denver? For me personally, it was a lot of preparation just for this talk. They actually had us limited to, I think it was like 15 to 20 minutes, with which isn't that long, but I'd had a lot of back and forth and thinking about what is the most value and things that I can distill down in that time period. Yeah, that's still interesting and helpful to people. Mostly right now, I spend a lot of time in my apartment and in the Bay where people don't go out that much. So I don't know if I did anything particularly to prepare for this event. One of the things that stood out to me at ETH Denver with your talk was, I think ETH Denver generally is still a developers conference, right? And so most of the talks generally were still pretty male dominated and also very developer dominated. So how did it feel to give a talk about design and as like a woman at Denver? One of the most energizing things was getting to meet a few other designers in the space prior in the few days that I was there. So I was in line for an event, met this couple that the girl, someone was working in design at a Web2 company right now, and she was here to learn and meet other people. So I thought it was very cool to see just people from different backgrounds. And for the talk in particular, yeah, I think it was also a struggle to think about, okay, what is most helpful to a primarily like technical audience that's building in Web3? What value can I bring to that? But I think these days there's a lot more societal issues and more of how crypto and Web3 will have an impact on like humanity as a whole and how kind of human coordination and DAOs coming up. So on that side, it's become a lot less technical in some of the discussions. I want to thank you because if it wasn't for you and Chloe, I would not have been invited to the Vector Dow House, which I loved. Can you tell us a little bit about the Vector Dow House experience for you? What was it like meeting everyone from Vector Dow? 
Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I met a few people in person here and there. When I was in New York last year, I got to meet some members out there, some members in the Bay Area, kind of our hubs. But I think I had a similar experience when you described in a prior episode on just like walking into the Vector Dow house that night and meeting people that were tangentially related, working on different things and all just super passionate. So we had a smaller event the day before of just Vector Dow core members. We did a dinner. So that was really nice and intimate. And Jason Martyr from our group actually cooked for everyone. I think aside from the talented designers that I met through Vector, just having a fun time together, just social time and just laid back time was the best thing. So I want to ask about your experience with Vector Dow and the talk that you gave at ETH Denver. But before we get into that, I wanted to go back to your experience as a designer and how you started off. One of the most interesting things to me about you is that you actually didn't study design. You started out in civil engineering, right? And tell us a little bit about that journey from going from civil engineering to design and how that process went, because it could not have been easy. I'll go back to actually around like middle and high school. My dad had always been in the biophysics world. He's been in it for decades. He was a professor of biophysics at Peking University in China. And I remember as a young kid, he had always nudged me to go into the sciences field. So in middle and high school, I actually spent a good chunk of time doing research and experiencing life on the lab bench and doing experiments. But through that experience, I was thankful to be able to have that as a student, but getting to understand too that that wasn't my head was at or what I wanted to go down. So I actually went into college not really knowing exactly what I wanted to study. But one thing I did know was I always like to build things and seeing kind of build things that are bigger than myself and seeing them come to life. So I chose civil and environmental engineering. One was because Carnegie Mellon, the school that I went to, was known for engineering and CS, even though civil was kind of the smallest of all the engineering majors. So I went through that program and learned a ton. I actually had like really great colleagues that were just a great group of people. And when it came down to interviewing, there were very interesting options that people go down. The companies that were interviewing were Schlumberger, which is like offshore drilling company. You would go and, and be off in the fields for like two or three weeks at a time. Then you take a week off or there would be companies like Exxon, or you go into construction management or a design firm. And so at that point, I was thinking to myself, okay, was this really what I wanted to do? I think it was interesting, but there was also so much. It was a predominantly like male-dominated field. And yeah, there were a lot of like technical aspects that I wasn't as stoked about. I ended up getting my first job as a business tech analyst at Deloitte in consulting back to my hometown area of D.C., so I was actually consulting for Deloitte Federal, getting to work on client projects in the civilian space like IRS, defense space like DOD and Customs and Border Patrol, just getting to see a wide range of how government agencies operated, but also building products that were for those agencies specifically. And then shifting into design, I think when I was there, I realized the project that I was working on at the time was building an in-house data visualization platform. and. I was a data analyst at the time, but I had some ideas that I sketched out on paper and then eventually on an iPad. And I shared that with my team members and with the partner at the time and realized they responded to her really positively and wanted to incorporate some of those ideas. And that was when I realized like, oh, this is an actual path that people go down. There's an actual design methodology that people study to think about how to build products in a very user-centered way. My takeaway from that whole career pivoting experience is that 
One, there's, it's really an arbitrary standard that society sets up that says you should take a linear career path or there's one way to do something. And my rule has always been, at least so far, is to never plan like too far ahead and go after what you're interested in and what gives you energy. And that may be a very nonlinear path. I would imagine that the environment in Deloitte, there aren't that many product designers, right? How did you actually go about learning how to be a product designer? And what was that process like? Yeah, I think it was a combination of self-studying. At the time, I don't think Figma was that popular of a tool yet in the design world. So I think just downloading Sketch as a tool and getting to be familiar with it. And then I also voluntarily took some short courses outside of work that one was on kind of like research and strategy and that methodology and then also on UI design. So getting the semi-credentials, but also just doing a lot of learning by myself and then trying to apply that to a project within Deloitte at the time. Was the research and strategy courses you took, just for folks who were thinking about transitioning, was it actually user experience research or what specific type of kind of research and strategy was it? Yeah, yeah, it was very much focused on user experience research. So the methodology from empathizing with your users and stepping back and removing all your preconceived notions, understand what the core user problem is and extracting and generating ideas from that. It's funny you mentioned, I guess, thinking about potentially divergent paths. Schlumberger, I actually know somebody that did a six-month internship there and he spent two of those months on oil rig, like in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of sweaty men stuck in this space where they had you know, basically nothing to do. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's crazy to think about how you could be completely doing something very different. And I'm very curious in terms of some of the skills in civil engineering, because I actually know quite a few people that transitioned as a undergraduate civil engineer degree to being very successful in finance and venture capital, et cetera. And so just kind of off of that transition, what are some of the skill sets or learnings from civil engineering that translated to being a good product designer? I'm thinking about things like project management or you know, critical thinking and things like that and how they've helped you as you've grown to become a good product manager yourself. One thing that always stuck out with me that I think they taught as part of that program was just, I guess, critical thinking, working within a lot of tight constraints. With civil engineering, your problems are very physical. They're very real. If you are building a building or remediating a waste site or something, there's often like more constraints than not. And you have to work within them to kind of come up with the best solution to fix that. So in a way, it's also design more like systems design. But the other part, I think, is yeah, project management and getting to get a team together and paint a picture of where we're going and rally the team behind it. That was also a big part of it. Out of delay, your first job was at Capital One. And after your Capital One, you actually went to Anchorage. The interesting thing about both these companies, one, even though they're both finance or personal finance, one is like an old traditional company and the other one is like a, like a new Web3 company, right? And so can you tell us a little bit about that experience of going from Deloitte to Capital One and then to Anchorage? Yeah. So first off, I guess Deloitte to Capital One, that was really my journey to try to work full time as a product designer. At Deloitte, there were opportunities to switch in-house. That proved to be pretty difficult. I think a big part of it just kind of because of the due to the large corporate structure. There was called Deloitte Studio at the time where a lot of the front end engineers, the designers has sat. I had tried to switch in, but the answer that I always got was that there was a cap to how many people can sit there. So eventually I started looking outside and 
Capital One always had a very, very strong design culture. I think the entire design org within the company as a whole were 500 people. And they would have weekly meetings where we people would give talks or just sing together as a whole. So that was my reasoning, yeah, into making that jump. And then after working at Capital One for a bit more than two years, I think, again, the corporate structure, I was starting to feel like I wasn't learning as much or there's more that I could contribute or learn in a different field. So I actually was specifically looking to join a startup, not anything in Web3 or crypto at the time, just looking for a smaller company. That was a whole journey in itself. But basically, I think it turned out to be a blessing in disguise and getting into Web3 and joining Anchorage. I was interviewing for a few companies at the time. And there was one major protocol company now that was only six people at the time. I had flown out from New York to SF for an onsite interview and remember prepping in the airport, really trying to understand what Ethereum was and what all these new like DeFi concepts were, options, margin calls or derivatives. If you have any guesses on what that company is, but basically I ended up getting a rejection, but this team had seen how quickly I was able to ramp up and learn about these concepts and had actually connected me to a few people in the space. One of them was Chris Kalani, who's now starting Phantom and Phantom Wallet. And then he connected me to Linda Shea, who's a longtime investor in the Ethereum space. Not to name drop here, but Linda, who eventually introduced me to the Anchorage team. I'm just grateful for these connections. And the crazy thing is that I didn't know these people personally. I felt like seen and welcomed by people that I knew only briefly or not at all, but knew they were super smart and willing to help out their other fellow builders in the space. So I felt like there was a sense of camaraderie rather than competition among products, which had always stood out to me about the space. And personally, I try to, I like always remember kind of that moment and want to repay that in helping people, especially like women and underrepresented designers get into the space if they are curious. So up to this point, what was your engagement or experience with crypto? Was it a conscious move to apply and to get into Web3 space or was it you just kind of fell into it? It wasn't something that I knew I wanted to go into for sure until I started learning about it in preparation from that first interview. It definitely seemed a big risk at the time or actually stepping back a bit. I think I was first exposed to crypto in around 2015 or 2016. I had some guy friends when I was living in D.C. who were investing in these different tokens. Some of them probably were like dog tokens at the time. I actually put in a little bit just because I was curious, but also it seemed like one of those risky things that my guy friends were doing and like I was unsure about, but basically didn't read too much into at the time. I think lost a couple hundred bucks that I had put in. But I think when I started learning about Ethereum and just blockchain, when I was interviewing for this company, I remember realizing and reading an article that said, okay, I can either build for a centralized 2.0, like the next Facebook or Google, or I can help build the next decentralized 1.0. And that became a no-brainer, especially as a designer and getting to build the foundations of how people interacted in this new world and make a larger impact and opportunity to build on the frontiers here. When you were doing that fast kind of prep and onboard, um, figuring out all the kind of different DeFi concepts, any tips or tricks that stood out or concepts that stood out to you, either to get listeners excited or just to help them understand like what excited you about the space? Yeah, there's honestly a lot of resources 
a lot of YouTube videos and articles out there now. And it's pretty disaggregated. If you really wanted to go down a rabbit hole, you can on any one topic. I think so much of my learning really solidified after I started actually designing for these problems. And I know that's not something that everyone has the time and space to do at the moment. But I think nowadays there's the whole DAO wave of getting to be a part of like joining a Discord and figuring out how a decentralized community works and how they work together. And I would say, if anything, just going after a topic that you are interested in, whether that's music or in the art space or whether that is your job function in design and how to build products in Web3 and do on the ground work, either trying things out as a Web3 user and connecting your wallet to different dApps and figuring things out or joining a community to get in the weeds with it. So let's talk about that first problem that you were solving at Anchorage. What were the product problems that Anchorage needed to solve? To give a quick overview about Anchorage, Anchorage is a crypto platform for institutions. So just to explain that, as individuals, we hold our crypto often in a wallet or on an exchange or like on a non-custodial wallet or something. For institutions that can be funds or family offices or neobanks, they're susceptible to much, much larger risks. They trade in much larger volumes and they transact with many more counterparties than we do as individuals. And so they're actually legally required to use secure custody when they're at a certain point. And those institutions, they don't just hold and sit on that crypto for a long time. They also trade, lend, borrow, stake, or like vote on governance, the latter two of which are very crypto native experiences. So a lot of what we were solving at Anchorage was how do we bring what institutions are familiar with and know and need to do for the survival of their business? And how do we introduce them to the Web3 experiences and crypto? And I'll just add that what's special about the Anchorage product is the emphasis on security. So that was also very interesting to me to learn about as a product designer. They had a very, built a very James Bond-like experience when it comes to moving funds around, involving like multiple signatures, involving your biometrics. And there's also a human security layer to when you're dealing with so many funds. After Anchorage, you've moved over to the syndicate and... Lee, Andrew, and I have a little bit of experience with Syndicate because we just invested some money into investment out on Syndicate. And it was a really fun experience. Can you explain what Syndicate is and what you guys are trying to achieve? Yeah. So investing is the single biggest driver in who and what gets built in our world. And traditionally, that financial capital has been fairly centralized within certain people's hands and determined by a handful of people. That's primarily like cis white males in Silicon Valley. And today's traditional models for investing are reinforcing that inequality in our society. And that's not just who gets money or wealth. It's inequality in power and opportunity and knowledge that flows down from who's able to build their vision for the world. So Syndicate's mission is to build the tooling to change this, which sounds like a, a lofty goal, right? Um, so allowing any individual to invest what they have, whether that is money or time or their skill set towards projects that they believe in, and then redistributing that wealth and redistributing kind of who gets funded in the space. So if you wanted to invest even small amounts today, it's extremely time intensive and costs thousands of dollars in fees to actually just to get set up. And that's not just one part of that is setting up the legal entity and legal requirements today for investing. And then there's also fees that you often pay for to a platform such as AngelList to get that set up. 
How did you learn about and get involved with Sinkim? It's actually my current manager right now, who's James Robinson, who's our head of design at Syndicate, had actually reached out over a design mentorship platform just to chat about crypto design. But he was also recruiting at the time. So that was how I learned about what the team was doing. It reminded me a lot of why I was interested in the space in the beginning. Does Syndicate actually help you automatically set up the entity and optimize the fees that you mentioned? Or does it kind of just guide you through that process? Right now with our investment club product, we've partnered with a company called Doula to help set up that legal entity. So right now we're mostly providing guidance in our Gitbook, in our documentation. There's a lot of guidance around whether, one, whether you need to set up a legal entity and also which type. But moving forward, that's also definitely something we're considering to productize or help you decide right off the bat, depending on your end goal with investing. Yeah, there's a lot of complexity that comes from creating this entity because like legally, for example, I think Wyoming is the only state that has a DAO structure. And then other places you have to basically create like an actual LLC to basically collect money and then invest it. Right. And so at least from a investor side, the process was really easy. And all I had to do was just invest some ETH into the fund. And it was pretty easy. Yeah. On the organization side where folks are setting up an investment. So it's advice on how to actually set up the entity and if you need to do it and then helping you set up the entity. And then what other kind of parameters are you, do you find it kind of important to help founders with? So I guess it helps to also just break down our investment club product right now that we built at Syndicate. So setting up a legal entity is just one part of that process of investing. And it's actually an optional part, depending on what you are investing in at the end of the day. So our current product that we released in January is Web3 Investment Clubs, which is an easy way to form an investing DAO with a group of friends or a close circle. So you basically have one representative or an admin come into the product. You name what this group is called and you set some rules around who can deposit up to what amount and when you want to close it to deposits. So these are parameters that are written onto the smart contract that you deploy by going through a few clicks in our UI. And then after that, you can then send an invite link to, let's say if one of you had uh, were an admin to set it up, you send it to your other two members to deposit and automatically be able to track the cap table of who owns what as the investments change and grow over time. Wow. So how often do y'all stay on top of the contracts? Because from what I've seen, they're evolving quite frequently. We are constantly making updates as we, one, learn more about our users and also expand our product to allow for more structures. The investment club creation flow that I just explained is one use case that we imagine for investing. Like investment clubs have certain legal parameters around it, can only be up to 99 members and everyone has to actively participate in governance. But in the future, we're looking at being able to serve all different types of investment templates, if you will. And that will definitely involve updates to our protocol. I'm curious right now, what are some of perhaps the trends you're seeing with onboarding of investment clubs of kind of what you know, maybe interacting with the community, what are some of the things that they're looking for, maybe even in the evolution of these investment clubs and DAOs? And then also, what are you excited about, both in terms of syndicate and just in general, maybe in the investment space or just in Web3 in general? 
One thing that I heard recently from a community member or someone that had actually set up an investment club is they brought up like needing to communicate to their members when they should basically expect to get their money back. I thought this was really funny because of course, if you're putting in an investment, you want to know at least what the time span is, not just when this closes the deposits, like that's very important on the admin side, but when can I expect to see any returns? And that obviously varies based on the club itself and how the admin wants to set it up. But I think it's interesting because we've defaulted to a lot of those things being Oftentimes, these DAOs have discords, they're on Telegram groups. We expect them to be actively communicating on these things. But I think it's part of that education piece, again, to help admins understand and maybe even nudge them to fill in that information when they are sharing this with their members as a whole. Yeah. I mean, just on that, I think that's interesting because definitely I would imagine there's a lot of people that are perhaps joining Investment Club for the first time that don't really, haven't gone through the iterations and the expectations might be just sky high, right? And they feel like, oh, this is exciting, rocket ship to the moon, and we're just gonna be like smooth sailing the whole way without having seen all the ebbs and flows of just the investing process in general. I mean, one of the conversations that we're having in our syndicate Slack channel is people are talking about different types of investments. And I'm realizing that everyone's understanding of the time frame of the investments is very different, right? Some th- people are thinking about all these are like short-term trades. Some people are thinking like, oh, this is, these are like long-term investments. And so then we're not even on the same page in terms of what's the time horizon of the actual fund and when do we get paid back? We haven't even decided that yet. Yeah. And we already put our money I in there. I can't believe that that was not on contract for the record, but I did it for good faith and will who told me about this. So let the record show I'm blaming him. Yeah, I mean, I put my money in there without any guarantee of when I'm going to get my money back. <laughs> I actually love that. One of my biggest, again, aha moments around VCs and fundraising is that at the end of the day, it's like all about people's reputation. It's not so much of a secret, but even when I was talking to a founder investor recently and me still understanding the entire venture space, of course, we tell people in Web3 to also always do your own research before buying this token or something. But oftentimes, like given how much, how time constrained they are, It's a lot of knowing someone's reputation, if they're in their network, in their circle, if they've heard something, you know, off about this person or something like that, that is a big determining factor of whether someone gets funded or not. So to your question of what am I excited about for Syndicate and Web3 as a whole, our company actually just got off of a onsite in Denver. So I'm like pretty hyped up about this, but where we're going next, we're really looking to build an entire platform and ecosystem of tools for fundraising that enable communities to coordinate capital in completely new ways. Right now, it's a lot of educating based on what we know today and the fundraising structures that exist today. But I think there's a lot that we are going to about to get into with using membership NFTs and thinking about identity and kind of the social sphere of investing. In essence, it's really disruptive to just the standard, whether it's VC or investment process and structures, right? And then I think that having tools or resources, both in the beginning fundraising phase or even in the management and follow portfolio structure or community management is going to be like just as important as well. Yeah, for sure. So related to Syndicate, but more actually for working for a Web3 company, there are articles coming out about how much Web3 engineers are getting paid. That is likely a combination of actual payment and equity. But just to the token aspect of payment, 
and how volatile tokens are, right? And their tokens are effectively equity. How has it been for you to work in such a volatile token environment? Has that affected you? How did that affect your thinking about joining syndicate or do you like diversify your token risk somehow emotionally? How has it felt? Just kind of your general thoughts. How has that been? Are you thinking about doing anything differently in the future? Yeah, I think first as a disclaimer, Syndicate is set up in a way that right now is very much like a normal startup company. So I do get a generally pretty stable salary in USD, as well as the equity piece of like working with a startup. But it definitely has been something that I realized my thinking and perception of risk has changed over time. And when I was considering joining Anchorage and jumping into this crypto space, I was actually having a very, very tough time and decision with deciding between this company and something else that was in the Web2 space and much further along, I guess, much more stable, much bigger team. And I remember reading an article by Jill Carlson that's called Trends and Timescales that really talked about your success is based on three levels. So there's your personal success, how well you do, there's how well your company does, and then there's how well the entire industry that you work in does as a whole. And the takeaway was that the industry success and riding that wave is the biggest override the other two as well. So I think in that case, that flipped my thinking around, okay, I can see the potential of what Web3 and crypto can enable. And even if this certain company at the time may not be where I work for the rest of my life, for sure, but at least getting to get ahead in in this industry and riding that wave was important. And then personally, just Being a builder in this space, I literally stop looking at prices. Like I actually couldn't tell you prices of certain tokens are at the time. I'll like once in a while check my portfolio. But yeah, I mean, I think most builders in the space take a much more longer term approach with it. And yeah, kind of you're in it for the long term. You've gone through the trauma already. So you know what's coming. You know, it comes back up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I love that. So this is a self-serving product manager question. As a PM... I'm consistently kind of trying to do kind of user research to evolve the product. And so y'all have already determined so many important factors, the contract, number of investors, cap tables. Do you know what inspired the team? And then also, where do you kind of continue to do research to think about what's next for the product? Yeah, that is something, if I'm understanding you correctly, I think that push and pull between relying on empirical research, usually as a designer or product person, if you're in tune with that versus just relying on your intuition to build a product like this is definitely something that I'm sorting through day to day. I think one strong thing why the syndicate team is uniquely positioned here is our founders and our founding team has very strong backgrounds in in investing. Ian Lee in particular, he was working at the investing branch of IDEO for a very long time and had also met Will, his co-founder there at IDEO. So I think a lot of that is just for me personally, as a designer, I'm getting a lot of feedback and also just wrapping my head around how the VC world operates today and how investors think and what are these different investment vehicles. I think we'll likely be pushing out more like educational content around that soon. Um, That's one of the biggest bulb moments in my head is like, I'm learning about all these things. It's starting to make sense. And we want to make sure that all the new like users and new generation of investors and people that start to use our product start off on the same foot as well. So one of the reasons why I actually brought you on is because I think you are, in my opinion, one of the thought leaders on Web3 Design, right? And 
you're talking to like with the lines that you're talking to the top Web3 founders in the space. You're talking to the developers on building on Ethereum. And so I wanted to ask you, what is good design in Web3? We understand from using Web3 products and from using crypto that it has a lot of catching up to do when it comes to Web2 versus Web3, because there's a lot of more complexity when it comes to and a lot more risk, right? Can you just give us a general framework in terms of how to think about good Web3 design? Yeah, I'll start off with, this is maybe a hot take that good design in Web3 is not that different than good design in Web2 and what design currently is. I think, yes, there are a lot of different technical concepts. There are a completely different mental model around how people may start to think about identity and governance and privacy and all these concepts coming up soon. But I think ultimately a lot of the same design principles stay in place. It's just how we apply that to these newer applications. To touch on a few principles that I've gathered over time, this is to recap what I had shared at ETH Denver 2, one of the observations that we take away from Web3 is that there's so many more decisions that people are making. And this decision fatigue is very much amplified in the space because given how open and composable building in the space is, anyone can create a protocol, anyone can create applications on top of a single protocol. As designers thinking about how our users are making these decisions on a day-to-day basis and throughout an entire day, and how do we make that easier for every product flow that we build? Second is new roles and responsibilities that people are taking on. I think very fitting right now during tax season, we now have more complex situations to deal with taxes if we have been doing on-chain activity. We're taking on that new role. We are becoming like traders day-to-day. We are becoming custodians of our own wallets, of our own funds. And how do we really bring people on to catch up and also some of these rules which have existed in today's world and yeah, allow them to teaching people about these new roles and responsibilities they're taking on. The third is this exponential growth of noise and spam. I think there was a relevant tweet to someone in the space that happened recently around, hey, so-and-so or someone just randomly sent obscure or obscene ENS domain into my wallet. I don't want this associated with me, but what can I do here? So I think there's a lot that needs to be done on the technical side and progress to be made there in order to unlock better user experience as well. But thinking about that in the long term. And then the fourth, I would say, is really about design as a practice and building more intentionally towards a digital pluriverse. There was a whole movement and can read about it, pluriverse.world, but this declaration that basically said that hey, if we're all building towards a vision of more like radical belonging where people can really feel like they belong in their certain communities or in this new Web3 world, let's make sure to know our biases in design right now and how we are setting up the foundations and the tools for people to navigate the space. I have products that I like, right? I don't know if it's because of good product design or if it's just because, yeah, I don't know what it is. Gallery, for example, right? And so Gallery makes it super easy to show off your collection in a way that really makes you feel proud. And my favorite part about Gallery is the fact that you can share that link on Twitter and it actually shows, it generates a preview that actually shows off four of your NFTs, right? It's a dynamic preview. And I think that's genius. Yeah, that's a really good example. Gallery has really gone to the side of having a very, very simple, clean UI for showing off art that can have very different visual patterns or can feel noisy when placed on the same sheet. I think very often we think about 
what the protocol can enable, all this different metadata that's attached to every NFT, but by just exposing the art itself, I think that was a conscious decision that's important when we're dealing with a world where there's so many different types of visual. Something that I noticed was a good design pattern was the onboarding to Syndicate. So to give some background, like I jumped in with Will on Syndicate on a friend's investment company. So Will was like, hey, you should invest in Syndicate. And I was like, hey, I thought it the investment company's name was actually, I won't say it here, but this other DAO. And then there was a link in that DAO's Discord or Slack into Syndicate. And so I knew that I was investing in something, but a cool pattern was that the link actually took me directly to the correct DAO, just via the syndicate link. And I realized intuitively that's like, oh, okay, this is some sort of like white labeled interface. And I work in this, but a platform that lets me invest in this company that Will told me about. So that was already smooth because I could actually figure it out. I'm like, oh, syndicate is actually, that's the platform. And then I'm using it to invest in this company that I'm in the chat for. So that was clear. And then landing it, the name was good. And then it directly fed me into a contract or an actual terms and conditions that said, hey, this is what you're agreeing to. These are some decisions you have to make. And the decisions were very clear. It was like, you can invest this much. You can choose this much. And then you have up to this date to choose. And at most, we're accepting this many co-founders or co-investors. So actually, that was all super clean. And then the difficulties that I saw. So like, actually, that was a great onboarding experience because a lot of crypto onboarding that I've seen is it's very difficult. It's hidden in transaction hashes or like behind things that you just can't tell. So that was a really cool onboarding pattern. And then difficulties though I had were within terms of service, there were additional things that had to be made that said, if you don't complete this, your investment won't truly occur, which is, if you think about it, potentially difficult or may not be true, given if it's all on the chain, it should just be on the chain. And then the confirmation, the message just kind of never came through. It, I watched my hash go through multiple confirmation messages and I didn't become an investor until kind of the next day. I never got confirmation of that, but it was a really smooth onboard. And then those are some of the nuances I noticed with difficulties of the confirmation. Yeah. Thanks for that walkthrough of your experience with Syndicate. I think there's two important critique points that you touched on. I think the first is that Syndicate tries to provide the tooling for you to achieve your investing goals. And there's so many different requirements that may be needed depending on each person or each group's situation that can be, there's legal situations around it. There's certain requirements to meet. So I think we can definitely provide, there's a lot more education and guidance that can be provided there. And then on the latter case, yeah, I think that's a general new Web3 pattern that we need to get better at is just how do we communicate that on-chain progress beyond just relying on someone to know to check Etherscan and check how many confirmations they have left or know like the amount of gas that they put in is going to directly impact how long something takes. Just better communication through that. But also I think there's a lot of progress to be made on indexing the blockchain before we can get to that level of specificity on the UI. Yeah, so I'd love to actually dig into that a bit more because I haven't actually designed for Web3 specifically. So typically in Web2, what I just heard you say is, I'll work with my team on is, we talk about an experience that we want to deliver. So let's just say we want to deliver a confirmation on my team in Web2. If the data is not there, we can't actually provide it. Like we can't give a confirmation because 
maybe we don't have the data to know that it finished. For the challenges that you've seen for confirming a Web3 transaction, is the data there and difficult to get to? Or does something need to be built on top of, let's say, Etherscan to interpret what's happening and give you the ability to tell a user that confirmation is ready to go? Like, is it a lack of data? What's the challenge there? Generally, one of the first things that people learn about transacting on the blockchain is that all that data is open and transparent. Like you can go on Etherscan and check any past transaction that you've made or anyone else has made and seen all that data. So in that sense, it is out there and visible. I think one of the challenges that I've heard just working with our engineering team is that being able to backtrack or aggregate data on chain is still very, very difficult. I know the graph protocol is doing a lot to help people create on-chain APIs to be able to quickly extract that data. And I know many projects that are using it, including us for like our own protocols that we deploy. So I think a bit of both there. Very cool. That's pretty profound. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things, Web 2 versus Web 3 is transactions generally in Web 2 are almost instant, right? Because you're not competing against all the other transactions on the blockchain. You just have your own server, you do a transaction and it's instant and you can read your own server data to show what's going on. Whereas with blockchain, with Ethereum, for example, when you submit that transaction, you're racing against all the other transactions and you're waiting for your transaction to basically finally get processed. And then that could take different amounts of time based on the amount of gas you're willing to pay, based on how congested the transactions is or how congested, congested the blockchain is. And so it is an interesting problem because you don't have as much control because it is decentralized. And so the infrastructure that you're building as well is almost like a community. People are just, as a community, building infrastructure to solve these problems as well. It's not just like a one-person game, but it's like a community game that everyone's trying to work on together. Yeah. I find it funny that you said that, I think in the beginning you said the Web2 transactions are instant and you get that information. I think from working in the fintech world, I'm familiar with thinking about financial transactions between bank to bank is is like days. Right. <laughs> um, oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> that ways it's, yeah, but I guess yeah. from like a technical side, it's quite different. But I'm also very curious to see, I mean, we're largely just talking about the Ethereum blockchain right now. Like Solana transactions are pretty much instant. I think after the Ethereum merge too, I'm interested to see how potentially that changes. But yeah, I think time and cost is two big factors that people of Web3 just have to deal with right now. But I'm optimistic that we'll see improvements soon. We had John Yan from VectorDAO come on this podcast and talk about bringing in a collective of top tier Web3 talent, right? And you were recruited into VectorDAO. And so now you're part of this collective. Tell us a little bit about how you got recruited and what your experience in VectorDAO has been like. Yeah. So... I think John and Etong had launched the announcement for VectorDAO, I want to say around July of last year. That was also when I was making the transition from Anchorage to Syndicate. For me personally, moving from the CFI world into the Web3 decentralized DAOs, DeFi world. And at the same time, I had been designing in the space for a little bit, but always struggled to find a community of designers or just meeting other designers in the space. So when I saw that announcement came out, I was super hyped about it. I was like, this is exactly what I had been looking for or definitely want to engage in and just really wanted to see it be built from the ground up and seeing that vision of how we can bring together like a collective of designers to really push the space forward. So I was very eager to like kind of reach out to them and get involved there. 
But yeah, I think I was like one of the first few people in the Discord and getting to see our channels now go or just a lot more people join from then on and seeing just the level of talented designers being brought in, people that I like still learn from, still learn from a lot just from seeing their work, especially on the brand side, I think. When I first met you in person and we kind of went over your story, one of the things that really stood out to me about you and why I wanted to bring you on the podcast is your fearlessness in raising your hand, right? Whether or not it's in Deloitte and basically saying, I want to be a designer or whether it's a vector DAO. Because when you were giving these talks, these presentations, no one asked you, right? It was an open call to whoever wanted to do the presentations and you raised your hand to basically give presentations to Alliance Tower, to ETH Denver. And I've also seen you raise your hand for doing the BD side and the sales side, right? Tell us a little bit about that process because you are a product designer. You don't have that much experience in doing sales and BD and you're raising your hand. Why are you doing this? And what's that experience been like for you? Yeah, it goes back to that principle of like being drawn to what you're interested in. For me personally, the first project that I worked on with Vector was I was working on a design systems project. Like I was working on something very specific and I realized I do love design at the end of the day and creating something very tangible out of an idea. But I think finding the right balance with what I was doing on my day job at Syndicate and then what I wanted to do with the rest of my time I found it just really intriguing to have a bigger picture view of the landscape and seeing where I can challenge myself as well as bring more deal flow and help enable the rest of everyone else in the DAO to have like more opportunities. So yeah, I think I started shadowing John Yan specifically. Shout out to him. I think I learned a ton of just about like negotiation and how he's been kind of found the best way to kind of position and really sell the crazy level of talent and yeah, what we can offer to different projects in the space. When I asked you to prep for the interview, one of the topics that you brought up was bringing the human side of Web3. So we're in a new phase of Web3 now, right? Before this DAO and FT innovation, a lot of it was just developer and more technical stuff. But now we're at a point now where it's a lot about communities. And so Let's talk a little bit about DAOs and co-ops. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. On the topic of DAOs and co-ops, I've been thinking more about this since I'm actually a part of this program called Crypto Culture and Society or CCS right now. One of the talks that was given by Austin Roby was around this topic of what co-ops and DAOs can learn from each other. And one of the biggest takeaways, I think, is at the end of the day, DAO right now is a very overinflated term. A lot of what DAOs are trying to figure out right now are human coordination problems that we have been dealing with throughout like the history of time. So one of them is a reference to cooperatives, which have existed for decades and a long, long time. So some of the things that DAOs can learn from these co-ops is a lot of the historical context. A lot of these communities have been practicing mutual aid or democratic ownership. And there's a lot of cases around that throughout history. A lot of that has often formed from like solidarity network when things have been tough. For example, the Underground Railroad was a mutual aid society that helped individuals earn and buy their freedom. So there's a lot of just cases that we can learn from just from the historical context. There's also shared principles that co-ops have traditionally been created a system around and these ideals that I think also apply to a lot of DAOs today. And on the flip side, there's a lot of things that DAOs are now thinking about that are new, being able to 
rapidly experiment with how they are structured and how they release a token to help guide incentives and being able to bootstrap their networks very quickly from the get-go with tokens. A lot of what co-ops have traditionally struggled with is being low on cash and how to actually achieve their goal in the end. So DAOs are able to use token-based systems to bootstrap that network. Another human side of Web3 topic that you brought up to us was public goods funding. Tell us a little bit about that. This was another topic that also came up in CCS that is super interesting to me. Public goods generally are defined as anything that is non-excludable and non-rivalrous. So non-excludable saying that it's very hard for me to guard off or put a boundary so that like you guys can't get to it. Or non-rivalrous saying like, if I use something, it doesn't take away from you guys enjoying it. So oftentimes people will think about public parks or spaces that we can all benefit from or even like the fresh air outside. Um, The issue with public goods in the world today is that because everyone is able to benefit off of it, because everyone is able to benefit off of the goods, no one's really incentivized to fund them, even though they are beneficial to all of society. So it's been interesting to see how Gitcoin has sort of solved this problem with their quadratic funding model, which essentially is saying if two projects get the same amount of funding, the one that has a lot more support from more people is actually able to have a much larger match from the matching pool. So in that way, the goods and the services that people generally want to see happen or want to see come to life, more of that is able to happen through quadratic funding and matching from much larger parties that are able to put in funds. Let me ask a little bit about Gitcoin because I'm not too familiar. I know DFDAO raised some money through Gitcoin. And from what I understand, Gitcoin has this large fund and I'm not sure where from. And basically, if you donate $1 to DFDAO through Gitcoin, then somehow you're donating 7 or $8 to DFDAO through Gitcoin, right? How does Gitcoin work? From what I've seen, Gitcoin kind of operates in these different seasons or rounds. I think the current one that's active is Grants Round 13. And for every round, they have a a large pool of either like protocol companies or different companies that are providing a large amount of funds that are saying, hey, I'm willing to match projects that come up or projects that meet certain kind of criteria that are offering grants. So I think some of the companies that are in this matching pool in this round are like Uniswap and ENS and OpenSea. And they put those funds towards different pool categories. And then anyone can come in and create a grant if they have an idea of something they want to build. They can submit it to that specific category. And once the rounds are open, anyone can go in and put in a dollar, put in however much you want to donate. And based on the quadratic funding algorithm, they'll parse out, okay, which projects got kind of more votes from individual people. And those ones will get more funds from the entire matching pool. As a minority woman in this space, I know that there are actually a lot of people that are interested in this space are intimidated to get in because there's just so many different terminology. And I just had a conversation where this woman that's trying to get into Web3 is talking to Web3 founders and these Web3 founders are just dropping lingo and just making themselves feel good because she doesn't understand it kind of like there's just like this thing going on where there's very intimidated, right, to get in. So if you were 
to give advice to somebody who is learning about it and wants to get into it, how would you give that advice to them and what to do to learn more and, and ramp up in the space? Yeah, I think there's generally two things that I provide as advice or I guide people to. One is just also depends on kind of how you like to learn. The first is just dipping your toes in and getting a wallet set up, trying out some different apps that you may have come across, browsing some starter intro to Web3 presentations. If you are comfortable with that, I think there's just a ton that you start to experience and learn about the space when you just dive in and start to use the products. And then I think more importantly is also to find a space and community that you feel comfortable in and in asking those questions and having people that, yeah, you're comfortable learning with and going on that journey. So I've tried to like curate and kind of put together a few of those organizations that I think have been at the forefront of that. For me personally, She256 was a great org that made me feel comfortable and like asking those questions and seeing people and women that say like looked like me when I was coming in. I think they have a pretty, they have an active discord and they also had a mentorship program that matches you to a mentor in the space. So you can have on those more one-on-one conversations. Another, I think that I want to call out a more organized program is Shifi, where you join a go- cohort and learn together and listen to these talks and start to like engage and do those kind of hands-on things and experiencing Web3 together. So that's another that's very kind of geared towards women and non-binary communities too. That's pretty cool. I didn't, I didn't even know about those, but I'm definitely going to recommend them to people. I've just heard that it's actually quite difficult to onboard to Web3 as a builder and maybe let's say even just specifically a designer so if you were going to hire somebody let's say onto your team just imagine that are there specific concepts that you would try to onboard them onto to make sure they were ready to design effectively for web3 so not the resource angle but actually like specific concepts that you would try and help them kind of onboard and understand to be an effective web3 designer i think it depends on the problem space and the product that you're building, to be honest. I think thinking back to my time at Anchorage, there were definitely a number of aha moments that I felt with it's like digging very deep into how Bitcoin addresses versus Ethereum addresses work behind the scenes that unlock like a whole bunch of other questions and thinking about how to communicate that to users. And that was very deep into the transactions layer. So I think it depends on what problem space you're in. That's amazing. What other aha moments or areas of digging did you kind of get value from? Another thing that I've been able to learn a lot from is just honestly working closely with our engineering team. And there are some moments when I just had them help me walk through Etherscan and a transaction that came from our smart contract. The association between the contract that we deployed on behalf of the user and then the club wallet, which we have for a syndicate that represents the group of funds. And then there's also the wallet that you bring on as a user. So there's one, a bunch of these different wallet addresses, and then also getting an understanding of that metadata on chain. I think as designers, we shouldn't be afraid to dig deep and understand the metadata that is on chain. I think it only helps us design that better experience and communicate that same information to people that use the platform. Super cool. Awesome. So if people wanted to follow you, or reach out to you, where do people find you? Yeah, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Handle is at underscore Yang Yu under my name. Mostly there, I think, being in the crypto Web3 space. And then you can also find me on LinkedIn as well. Thank you so much for your time, Yang. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people like you find us. You can find more about us on wild.show, WLD.SHOW. Please subscribe to our newsletter or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to get to know you.